You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now I'm back with body count and iced tea in Serbia. And I'm on the bus with ice and cocoa and I fall asleep in my bunk and I were stopped for a couple minutes. And then the driver, Stanislav, who was a Czech driver, he wakes me up. He's like, Hey boss, we got, we got the big problem. I'm like, what's the problem? He's like, the carne is not stamped. They're not letting us out of the country. I'm like, you fucking kidding me right now. I'm like, you're going to go back in there to that Serbian guy and just tell him that all the paperwork is going to be in order when I come in there. And when I walk in that room, I want you to walk out. Just walk out. Don't come back. Let me handle it. Okay. So Ice is down there and he's like, he's like, what's going on? And I just look at him. I'm like, if I don't get back on this bus, you guys need to go to Croatia and tell them that I'm in a Serbian federal prison. And I need to get, you need to get a hold of the U.S. consulate that's there and get me the fuck out of that country. Hello, friends, everybody, all you people that should be liking and subscribing to this podcast. My name is Siobhan Cronin. I'm here, as always, with Ben and Corey. And I'm really excited this week to welcome a dear friend of mine who has also been my tour manager, but also the tour manager for so many incredible bands. He's worked with Breaking Benjamin, with Snoop Dogg. He can tell us a lot more about his resume because it's huge. Also runs a root beer company, has run a venue, like the the king of business, in my opinion. We have John (laughs) Phillips this week, who is a lot of fun. I'm really excited to get into this episode with you, but thank you so much for joining us. And I'm excited to you, for pleasure. you to give, yeah, I'm excited for you to give Ben a run for his money because we were talking before the show about how you have no filter. So I'm excited to see this face off go down. There's not going to be a competition today. We'll just consider it a, uh, a meeting of the minds, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We could turn off the sound, be like a meeting of the minds. I, 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 I couldn't hear you over your bag of wheat thins that you just had a, a minute ago. It's still going. I'm just kidding. It's all good. I, I just wanted everyone to know that we uh, here at 2020, we like Nabisco. If it has a little red, a little thing in the mar- in the corner, we, we endorse it. And I will certainly eat it at any time of the day and or night. I was going to say, if you actually land that endorsement, uh, being the entrepreneur that I am, uh, the fact that it would have happened from this episode, I would like to claim a 10% royalty stake in that, uh, <laughs> in that endorsement by any chance. I, I can, but, I can, I can send some of these. I'll send at least 15 of these in the mail, freeze dried to you. And you just get a you know, you know, little wheat thing. You, paid you wheat send thing. me wheat thins. I'll send you root beer. We'll call it even at that point. <laughs> so oh, I'm into that dude. So speaking of which, I heard you had a, yeah. let's just forget all the, the stupid shit with, uh, with Snoop Dogg and Breaking Benjamin and all those bands. What's up with the root beer company, bro? Well, I, I own a root beer business by the name of Parlor. Um, we actually sponsor all the DWP festivals along with a bunch of other festivals like Blue Ridge. Um, we've activated at them for like the last 
two years, I want to say. Um, my partners are Josh Balls, who is on Space Zebra with DWP. Um, he also owns a business called The Strange and Unusual, and he used to be in Motionless and White. Uh, another one of my partners is Aaron Brook of Breaking Benjamin. He's also a, a co-owner of the product as well. Uh, Matt Giordano is another one of the owners. He, funny enough, he does like all the marketing and backend for Breaking Benjamin. He has a creative company that he has by the name of Par- uh, uh, Pressure. Uh, and then also there's another entrepreneur that's involved with us. His name is Chris Jones. Um, he's been involved with like app development, uh, a variety of like multi-million dollar businesses. And he's a very close friend of ours too. Um, but like the real story behind it is, you know, when 2020 hit, we all lost a ton of money. Uh, you know, we don't, we didn't know where we were going with our lives or direction whatsoever. So like I have a, ma- I have a, a major event company here in Pennsylvania too, um, which wound up taking a big hit and, you know, the music industry side of mine. So I was like, you know, I lost, you know, $1.3 million at that point. Once COVID hit, I was like, fuck it. Let's, let's lose a quarter million more. So, um, <laughs> I decided like my son, the one day wanted to start trying, he, he wanted a root beer and I was like, you know, I like, I want a root beer too. I'm like, that sounds really good. So I started getting, buying root beers from all over the country. I think like I bought like $500 worth of root beer because you know, when you have addictive personalities, it's, it's like go big or go home. So, uh, you know, I didn't buy crack. I bought root beer. So (laughs) I, I wound up sampling them from all over the place. And then I was just, you know, I had nothing to do. So I was just like being a dad sitting at home doing root beer reviews on Facebook, because that's really a dad thing to do, honestly. Um, but it reminded me of a story when I first like, uh, was on tour with breaking Benjamin and I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was on tour for like, you know, three months straight and I was dying for a haircut and I'm Persian. I'm, I'm middle Eastern. Like when we don't get a haircut after a couple months, you know, we, we start to look like Al Qaeda. Uh, <laughs> so the first thing that I did was I'm looking for a place to go to. Uh, I found this great barbershop online. I'm like, this is the place. I'm like, this is where I'm going. And I wound up going into the place and they, uh, the girl says to me, she's like, you know what, just go and take a seat in the waiting room. The barber's assistant will be out in a couple of minutes. I'm like, assistant. I'm like, what assistant? I'm like, what barber needs a freaking assistant? So I go in this waiting room and there's like pool tables and video games and pinball machines and jars of jerky. And I was like a total man cave. I'm like, this is badass. So I'm sitting there waiting. The assistant comes in. She's like, I'm going to put you in the chair and I'm going to give you a massage before the barber comes in. I'm like, massage. I'm like, what a service. I'm like, all right. So this, this girl pulls out this 19, like fifties, like hydraulic massage beater. Like it's got like a crank coming out of there. Like she's just smashing my back. I'm like, this is cool. I'm like, you know, 20 bucks, whatever. It's like, I I didn't know what I was getting charged at that point. It could have been 50 and I'd have been happy. And the barber comes out. It's this big burly guy, like had to be about, you know, 250, you know, uh, tats all up and down his arms, you know, like a big apron on and everything. And, you know, he looks at me, like looks at me dead in the face. He's like, here's what I'm going to do. He didn't ask me what I wanted. He just told me, this is what you're getting. I was like, cool. And guy gives me like the best haircut I've ever had in my life. And he's like, are you happy? And I'm like, yeah, this is great. And he's like, cool. He reaches over, 
grabs a frosted mug out of a fridge and pours me a root beer on draft sitting in the chair. And I'm like, I'm done. Like this, this is the end. So fast forward that this was back in like 2015. Fast forward to 2000, uh, later on in that year. And I got home from tour. Um, and I'm sitting there and I was like, you know, and it's like, like, I think I need a haircut again. And, uh, was with my wife at the time. And she's like, all right, when are you going to be home? I'm like, tomorrow. And she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to fly to Knoxville from <laughs> Pennsylvania. <laughs> so I did. Um, so I basically flew from Knoxville, went down and got a haircut just to see if I would get the, you know, the same exact experience again. And sure and shit, I did. So I, I never, never forgot that moment. And when it came to the concept of developing the root beer company, I wanted to take that moment and stick it on a bottle to basically relate to what happened to that exact moment. So like when I was explaining this to Josh and Aaron, when we were developing the concept, you know, we were throwing around shop like stuff like the first name that like I had come up with was rock and roll root beer, which thank God they didn't allow me to do that. Cause it's the stupidest fucking name on the face of the earth. And, uh, then we started thinking like, well, why not shop, you know, cause we're th- sitting there thinking about like barbershops, tattoo shops. And then I was like, well, what about parlor? And that's when it all kind of like came together and it gelled together. So that's how that root beer company was essentially formed was from that memory. And then we launched it out later in the year of 2021. And it was officially activated at Blue Ridge rock festival, um, that year where I actually was the production, uh, that actually was the director of business development for that festival that year. Um, which essentially like, it was like a rocket ship that year for that festival, uh, the way that it launched out, uh, that I mostly like handled like the, the production infrastructure for like the staging, the lighting, the audio and bringing in vendors and close relationships I had for years. So, uh, but yeah. And then it was like, when we made that company, uh, we wanted to be like edgy, like have like a cool brand, like you know, that's where the slogan, like drink more fucking root beer, like came from, because that's what the main slogan of it is. It's, it's like, uh, you know, and like, I, we wanted to do like crazy, like tricky things with marketing. And like, uh, I had a billboard up in the middle of like Wilkesbury PA and on it, it was, it was literally like big giant letters that just said, don't do Coke, drink more fucking root beer in the middle of the city. And <laughs> yes. people, like people went bananas, like laughing their asses off over it. And the thing was, is that it's like, I wanted people to be excited and happy about a soda product, you know? So it's like, and even like we, we were putting best foot forward with, um, you know, we set up an endowment fund, you know, for, uh, you know, mental health and, you know, we've been donating like money to like, um, like children's hospitals and things of that nature. Cause like, if we're going to have a product and a brand, even if it's like edgy and abrasive, who, who fucking thought root beer could be abrasive. Uh, but we wanted to have something that like essentially like gave back and had like good community impact and did the right things by it. Like, cause quite honestly, it's like, you know, you can make money all, all as much as you want to in this day and age. And you could do crazy stuff. Like I'm talking about, or, you know, you're losing your ass left and right. And you're inventing it, you know, investing into a pipe dream. But the fact is, is that if you don't do something good in the end and have it impact your community, you know, all you're really just doing is, you know, making money and making yourself happy. And really the, the point of the whole thing was that, you know, root beer was for everybody. And, um, you know, I wanted the product that everybody could, uh, have fun with and get behind. And I don't mean, else. I don't mean to interrupt, but what's wrong with 
making money and making yourself happy. Here's the thing. I'm very happy without money. Um, and I love money. Don't get me wrong. Like I could be like Scrooge McDuck if you want me to like swimming around Nevada fucking coins, you know, and not giving a shit, you know, and living up to my Persian mantra, if you will. Because uh, maybe that's what we do. But the, the, the fact is, though, I is thought that- you make rugs. No, we no, we fly on them. Carpets. Those are called are they carpets. Those, 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 <laughs> those, those, no, those are those are called used cars for us. They're the, those are used cars. Actually, that's what that's what we call those things. Can we kind of go back to the beginning and just for the people that don't know who you are, because I know you, but you know the people listening may not. Um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, how you like gravitated towards business, and I mean, I guess sort of start with the tour managing because it's you know you, I feel like you've had a really interesting path, and I'm curious to see what led you in that direction. Like, like tell me a little bit about that. I think you're going to have to go back a little bit further. Um, probably into my teen years, my late teen years. So the, I've always been into music. Um, I was a musician still am in, in theory for many, many years. Um, and when I was in high school, like my senior year, uh, I was, I was in chorus, you know, I went to all States. I got ranked like fifth in the state for a 10 or one part. Um, I had full rides and scholarships to go to like four different places, turn them all down. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, and I didn't want to have to go to school to learn music because I liked being a performer more than anything. So funny enough, I was a musician so wait, they were gonna send you, they were going to send you to school for free just to learn how to do something that you're basically having to pay your entire life for doing. Correct. That seems ironic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a conundrum and it's, it's, it's very much like the Prussian education system. It's like, you're really good at this. Let's find a way to get you to spend money. And it's like, fuck you. I'll do it myself. So anyways, um, I love that. So I, I was a musician for like 11 years. Um, and funny enough, I was in a band with Aaron Brooke, who's in breaking Benjamin too. We were in a band together. Um, and actually it's like, it's funny. Like we had an, an original band, like we played in a cover band as well for years and years. Um, and I used to do like 300 shows a year for 11 years straight. Um, were you the singer in the band? No, I was, I, I was a backup singer, but I did lead on some things. And then I was actually a piano player, like a keyboardist. That's like my main. So I can play guitar. I can play cello. I can play bass. Like it's mostly string instruments that I can do. Um, but I was good at like, you know, recording and everything also, but it's like, one day I woke up and I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, and I actually did concert promotion for a while too. I used to book shows. I had a music conference that I ran in the Scranton Wilkesbury area. I used to take out nine venues over an entire weekend and booked a hundred. That? That's, that's like yeah. wild to me because it's like your average <laughs> musician that's young is not like, okay, I'm also going to do this like sort of massive operation type stuff. So, I mean, where did you get that mindset from it? Did, like, were your parents entrepreneurs or like, I, I don't know. That seems like that was next level. Did your band need to play? So you're like, fuck it. You're the smart guys. Like, I'm going to make the venue myself, make 700 people open and sell tickets for me. But it's going to be my though. show. Well, no, it, I, I'm curious because I feel like you're an, you're an entrepreneur. You, you're a hustler. You're a freaking musical gangster. I love this. We, we're cut from the same cloth. So like for me, like an Tell me if I'm wrong here. Like when I was younger, I'm like, oh yeah, I can't play that show. I'll just make the show. You made the show. You made your own market, didn't you? You just said, I'm going to invent that. And then it was. Yes am I crazy? No. Yes Maybe no. I am. Uh, I mean, crazy, yes. I mean, but uh, we're all crazy. Um, 
No, the I would say that, like, to be honest with you, I never took no for an answer to begin with, with whatever it is that I did, you know, but I would say that the main reason that I was a hustler and I got to wanting to be an entrepreneur, like I don't have entrepreneurs in my family, you know, or business owners or any of that stuff. Maybe some of my Iranian side of my family, like my cousins and whatnot. But, um, you know, I actually grew up in a really, uh, really difficult environment, believe it or not. Uh, my mom was a single mom. Um, you know, my father wasn't around. Uh, my grandfather raised us, you know, we were really, really poor too. Um, but that was okay because it taught me the value of basically appreciating anything that I worked for in life and having an appreciation for those things so that I could pass them on maybe to my kids or somebody else that I wasn't with. So they wouldn't have to go through what I went through, you know? And like, sometimes I think that like my mom gets like, she might get a little upset because of the fact that like, we didn't really have a lot, you know, but if it wasn't for my mother and standing behind me and all the things and me having to force myself into wanting to be more, uh, driven, you know, that I wouldn't be where I'm at today, you know, and there was a lot of great circumstances that I had and things that I, you know, came across that led me down those paths. Like even when I was 15, um, I had a mentor that essentially got me into this industry and his name is Jeff Peters. And Jeff was the tour manager and the front of house guy for the beach boys for 20 some years. Um, and I met Jeff at a beach boys concert and I was just some kid that's like sitting there by the front of house barricade, like listening to Mike love and everything. And he like, let me inside of the front of house area. And he's just like, you know, do you like this stuff? I'm like, yeah, I'm a musician. I'm like, I want to do all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And he actually like mentored me for years. And I would like to say too, that if it, and he's still a very, very close friend of mine, but if it wasn't for him and that kindness he gave me when I was just that kid at 15, staring up at that stage, I don't know if I'd be on this podcast right now, I guess is the best way to put it. Like, <laughs> And I, so I are you blaming him for having to take such a low blow as to be on the show instead of getting <laughs> opportunity cost of working root beer? Because it sounds like you got this whole root beer thing going. So, I mean, I feel like this this is an opportunity cost that wasn't necessary. And I do I blame mean, your friend. I mean, I'm Persian and brown. I just thought this was equal opportunity day on the freaking podcast, honestly. <laughs> We're equal, equal opportunity assholes, man. <laughs> I mean... Anything worth doing is worth overdoing, I guess. I don't know. Like uh, more is more. I will say my favorite, my favorite, not to interrupt you, my favorite John Phillips quote that we still in star set say to this day is, is I know everything I have done in my life has led me to this moment. (laughs) And anytime there would be a shit show or a meltdown, I just remember you saying that you just say, Siobhan, everything I have done in my life has led me to this moment. Do you want the original story of where that came from? Yes, absolutely. So I was playing, I was 19 years old. I was up on this stage in this place called the Empire Club. And it was like, I had first joined this band that was like massively popular. They would pull hundreds of people every night, wherever they went, like seven, 700 to a thousand, like a fucking cover band, like just drawing people in droves. Like this is great. As a keyboard player, cellist, are we a cellist now? What are we now? In this just band. a good look, just a good looking dude. Honestly, that's all, right, all it was. I'm, I'm just, with you. <laughs> but as I'm a keyboard player, um, so we're this place every Sunday that we played was loaded with underage people, strippers, and drug dealers. Like total fun time. Okay, <laughs> and we're on stage, and this stripper comes up on the stage, and she just starts taking all her clothes off. 
And I'm like, you know, I'm 19. I'm like, all right, whatever. And I'm like, this is, you know, it's not like then no, nobody's going to not look away. I'm like, this is hysterical. So right next to the stage, there was a DJ booth and there was this Rastafarian DJ guy, big long dreads and everything. And he looks over and he's like, hold on. I got it. And we're like, what? This motherfucker pulled out a live chicken from underneath <laughs> his DJ table, a fucking chicken. And I'm just sitting there and he lets the chicken out. And this chicken is just on the fucking stage, like clucking and bucking. There's this naked girl on the stage, chicken running around. And I'm sitting there to myself and I looked, I'm like, you know, I'm like, every decision I've ever made has led me right here to this moment right now, because it's like, where do you see that shit? Like nowhere. So it's just like, like, like who carries a chicken? You know, and, and, I, and funny enough, I told that story to Boz, who is a, a front of house and TM as well. He just thought it's a pretty reckless. And he was the first PM I ever worked with. And it was with Breaking Benjamin. And he looks at me. He's just like, well, I want a chicken. And I was like, well, careful what you wish for. So like we showed up in Corpus Christi and I wanted to make sure that they were reading the rider. And I demanded from the venue that they bring me a live chicken to front of house that day, or we wouldn't play the show. And sure and shit, there was a fucking chicken there that day. I never saw him so happy in my life. It was great. You you are the question. king of getting like everything that you need and want on a rider. Uh-huh. I mean, like that all of my, the, the funniest moments that I can remember because of something that you demanded. But anyway, go ahead, Ben. What were you going to say? I'm going to say you had said, where else do you see that? And I can tell you because I've seen it. I was outside Grant Park in Chicago, right on Lake Michigan at the beautiful beaches, right right there in Chicago. And some it's in between Lollapalooza, I want to say, one one year, and some ladies comes up to me and she goes, could you please watch my chicken? Just hands it to me and walks off. I literally am holding a chicken <laughs> on Lake, and I'm like, what the flying fuck? And the chicken was all maimed. Its beak, beak had been cut off. She's like, yeah, I stole it from a slaughterhouse. They cut off their beak. I'm like, oh, Yikes. take your chicken back, lady. And then she continued to tell me that she got arrested for uh, being in, in, in the the giant fountain like on the front of uh, uh, Married with Children that's in Grant Park for, for Lollapalooza that she was naked the day before with her chicken. And I was like, yeah, I think you need to take your chicken back. And the craziest thing was five years later, I was in San Diego. I met some girl randomly at a bar and it turned out that that was her aunt. She's like, yeah, my aunt one time got like caught naked with a chicken uh, at Lollapalooza at Grant Park in like the giant fountain. And I'm like, what was her name? And then I think my buddy pulled up his like his his Facebook and was like, is this her? Because we had pictures of us holding the chicken. So it, <laughs> all of my life had led up to that moment. All small, those decisions. Small world. Small world. Yeah. Chickens. <laughs> Who would have thought? All the decisions you ever made in your life had brought you to, that, to that moment. <laughs> Right, brought you to that mutilated chicken that you had right then and there. Like, oh my God. Well, coming, coming, back, coming back around, you know, you were talking about, you were in a band. Sorry, we, we went off the rails a little bit. But no, you, you were in a band and, 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 and booking out, you know, venues and all of this stuff. And like, so the question originally was, you know, like, how'd you get that entrepreneurial spirit, which... I think we've answered, but I'm, I'm curious to see what, so where did that lead to from there? So you, at what point did you transition from musician to going more on the production side or more of the management side? You know, I just woke up one day and I was just sick of playing. Um, you know, it was, it just happened. Um, you know, and one day, honestly, like I had just had enough. Um, 
so what happened was like, I took time off. Uh, I opened an event company and I was really like, just, um, I was into the fact of basically like doing events and like building out like weddings and galas and stuff. Like I have like a big event business that does that. And then I basically got a call from breaking Benjamin from Aaron, um, you know, asking me like, you know, where do I rent a barricade? And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, basically like, we're looking to do a show and we're going to do like this thing where like breaking Benjamin's going to come back after six years. Um, you know, but it's like a first come first serve thing. We're going to announce it online. I'm like, that's cool. You can't do that. Like flat and simple. You're going to have pandemonium and it's going to be a fucking shit show. So what happened was is that I wound up being the promoter for the show for breaking Benjamin that they did for their first return after six years. So I had like a bunch of like, you know, I have my ASCAP and my BMI, you know, licenses. Like I had like all my liability insurance. So I was like, I I'd done the events in that room before. So I put it up on my ticketing platform and it sold out in, you know, three minutes. Your uh, ticketing platform? Shows. Yeah. Like I had like my own, like not one that I own, but basically like the license for it essentially. Yes. Okay. It, it, yes. <laughs> Persianmaster.com is what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was going uh, to say, I thought Ticketmaster was a monopoly, but you own apparently the event company, the, you're the promoter, you're the, you're the ticketing company. You're are you own, are you your own Ponzi scheme? <laughs> you know what? One way, yeah. yeah I, I tell actually, other Persians about me. I actually audit, you know, my own taxes, and basically, like, <laughs> it has to go back to my own internal IRS thing, you know, that I have. It's like it's all good. <laughs> so the so the fucked up part was is that once it sold out, what the venue didn't tell me is that they had recoded the venue, so the show was oversold by forty people per night. Town council starts flipping out about it. They threaten to shut it down. So I'm like, here we go. So I'm like, so I go to the town council. Like I have to go to this town council meeting with the mayor, the fire chief, the police. And they're all like, you know, you should have known about this. I'm like, nobody told me the building was recorded. I'm like, I've been doing events here for years, whatever. I'm like, you just wound up doing it. And they're like, you know, this is going to be a problem and blah, 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 blah. And we're going to have ticketing. Like we're gonna have to ticket cars left and right. And, you know, there's going to be all this crap. I'm like, well, isn't that how you make money? I'm like, you know, you're, you're fining people. Like, what are you bitching at me for? And they're just like, well, now like the fire department's got to get involved because you oversold the show. And I'm like, what do you guys need? I'm like, just, just tell me what it is. And I'm arguing with these people for like two hours. They're like, we need to send the fire chief out there and we need like a donation to the fire department on top of it. I'm like, fine. I'm like, what is it going to cost? And, the, and I, this is two hours into this meeting. And the guy looks at me, he's like, I don't know. He's like, it's a lot to ask. I'm a bit of like 150 bucks. And I looked at him. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, literally, like, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I, I, and I put down like $300 on the table. I'm like, I'm leaving. I'm like, you all have a nice day. I'm out. So lo and behold, that was way more than 150 bucks of your time. I would have lost yeah. my it shit. Was, it was such bullshit. That's such, such small town politics. That's, that's so hilarious, dude. You're, you're like, wait a minute. I could have got that. I, I would have given you $500 just to get those minutes back from my life. Literally. Like, I would have just laid the money on the table, like, to start with. Like, <laughs> give, me, give me a parking ticket. I'll pay for it. It's fine. Like, 
but uh, so I wound up doing the shows. They were they were a huge success. And then um, Ben didn't have a tour manager to start, so he's like, he's like, do you want to tour manage my band? And I was like, well, you're like an A level band, and I've never known. I've like I've never tour managed a band. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. He's like, well, I think that's why you'd be good at it. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So that's how it began. And you know, it's funny because if it weren't for him and it weren't for Aaron, you know, I wouldn't have launched into such an incredible career doing this as I have today. And I'm very grateful for that. Like that's something I, I, I can't repay that debt, you know? So it's, um, I give a lot of homage to Ben and I give a lot of homage to, to Aaron for even allowing me to do that. So kudos on them. I mean, yeah, that's incredible. I, yeah, I mean, great. I mean, listen, they, they trusted the minority to lead the charge. What can I say? <laughs> okay, but as a, so as a minority that has no idea supposedly what he's doing, they must have seen something in this Persian man, like that you maybe you're the prince of Persia. You know, I loved that video game growing up. Uh, but you, they saw something in you to be like a tour manager, which, I mean, I have an idea of what tour managers do, but can you explain, so you're being thrown into this, do you have any idea of what a tour manager actually does? And did you do that? And how did you get, what was the learning curve? Mistakes. Mistakes are the greatest learning curve. Um, you know, the thing about being a tour manager and a production manager, like here's the thing, everybody in life, when you're a kid or you're a teenager, they think that you're in a band and that like there's a tour manager and there's just this guy that like fucking rolls around with the band, you know, getting them whatever they want. Like there's that stupid stigmata. It's like, Oh my God, like there's going to be girls backstage and drugs and booze and this and that. And to be honest with you, there probably is with some bands and that's okay. That's what it is for me. That's not for me. Um, I think that a tour manager is nothing more than a problem solver, you know, and that's the biggest thing. Like, don't get me wrong. Like being a tour manager means that you have a lot to do as far as logistics for an entire operation. Um, that involves travel, that involves, you know, hotels, that involves knowing like, you know, uh, talking with specific people in so many different departments from venues, knowing how to establish parking with places of where you're going to, um, what are the, you know, tour budgeting, what are the tax implications that you're going to deal with venues? You know, the funny thing is, is that I'm actually a tour accountant also, which is a big thing of mine and knowing about money because, one of the things that I try to watch for any artist is letting them know like, Hey, you know, you're overspending here in some of these areas. You have a problem here with this. Like you're eating into your budget. Like, again, it's the artist's money at the end of, they want to spend the money. That's their prerogative and that's what they want to do. But it's my diligence to let them know that they're being, um, maybe over frugal or they're going into their bottom line where it might, they may incur a loss or they're not doing the proper things to watch out for state taxes, or they're not doing the best thing that's, you know, best for their business. Um, you know, I'm kind of an anomaly in the sense that like I am an entrepreneur and a businessman, and there's not a lot of tour managers that are like that. There's a lot of tour managers that have side hustles, but not ones that are running multi-million dollar companies, you know, outside of being a tour manager, you know, and I've been asked by my mentors uh, before like Mary Jo Spillane, you know, Guy Sykes, uh, you know, Mary Jo's done shine down. She's out with ghost right now. Um, you know, Guy Sykes is out with Volbeat and Godsmack, you know, Blaine Britton is out with disturbed and just Greta Van Fleet. And some of them have asked me, they're like, you know, they're like, you have businesses and they're like, you're out on the road. And like, why are you doing this? If you have like businesses at home and you could be at home. And like, my response is like, honestly, it's like, 
this is labor of love. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people that actually fit the mold of being a tour manager right now also. Um, you know, and to be honest, it's like you get to see so many incredible things, have a great network, great people, you know, and if it wasn't for me being a TM, um, I probably would not be having that established network that even helps my businesses on top of it also, you know, so it all kind of like wraps and goes hand in hand. Uh, but to get back to your original question, a, a tour manager is, is, is a responsible party on the road to ensure the financial, logistical, and operational aspects of a tour happen precisely as they are supposed to. And if they are not happening, they solve those problems on the road in the most cost efficient way. And uh, uh, what's a, and any way that it suits all of the personalities that are out there possible, you know, cause <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, a tour is, it's like being married to many people at the same time. It's like, it's like being in Utah every single day, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way that I could word it. I love the caveat of personalities because I feel like that's something that's so unique to the, the music and art world where it's like you, you have to be prepared for all of these funny idiosyncrasies and, and, and preferences that people have and like cater to that. It's, it, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> There are definitely personalities that I've I've encountered on the road from artists and crew alike that I will not forget as long as I live. There there are there are specific stories uh, that I that I can certainly say uh, have had quite the impact. You know, please do <laughs> give us an example, please. <laughs> oh God, uh, you don't have to name anyone, and you also don't have to share if you don't want to. But, but you're allowed to. But why wouldn't you? So there was this instance with an individual whose name rhymes with Don Rechant. And <laughs> 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 so we were, uh, I remember going to Russia with the band for the first time with star set. And, um, which was probably, to be honest with you, uh, the show that the band performed at a facility called Red um, was probably one of the most incredible shows I've actually seen of any band perform before. And I'm not just saying that because Siobhan's on here too, but like there was just something about that performance that was just incredible. Um, and I had warned Ron going out before and I said, do you have a carnet for your gear and everything? Because we need to know it's going across borders and countries and everything else. And the a proper manifest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a carnet. Well, it's specific to your gear that you have now. Well, it's close. Well, that's not what I asked. I'm like, is it specific? <laughs> so the first thing that I discover when getting to Chicago is that the carnet was never exported out of Australia. So they never closed the carnet the last time they went to Australia. And I had to heal this carnet inside of the Chicago airport. Question. Uh -huh. What the hell is a carnet? So a carnet is, is a... Is that beef? Uh, yeah, that's the Spanish word for Carne asada? I don't no, know. Not, car not, car not carne asada. <laughs> it's spelled C-A-R-N-E-T. Like, think of carnet. But, it'll, but, uh. but, but be like French and fucking bougie with it in carnet. So, uh, like Target. Yeah, like target. Yeah, like like you get in your bathroom and you're trying to pull back the shower curtain before you take a shower. <laughs> like that's exactly what you would do. <laughs> um, 
it's basically a manifest that and like it's like a passport for your gear to go country to country and so that you're not being taxed on the gear when you're bringing it into the countries essentially Mm -hmm. so and it like designates it from the country of origin and its value and everything the issue was when we got to russia we didn't have enough vouchers in the carne and the carne needs to come with its vouchers from the country of origin so the, the, the other issue is, is that two of the, the cases that Stars had had went missing from Air France and they showed up the next day. So we had one voucher left enough to get it out of the country. But the problem was, is now because the gear was split, we needed another voucher. So now we are out of vouchers and we are in Russia with the band's gear. So um, I'm sure that Homeland Security will probably come back to us after this podcast. The Russians forged carne export vouchers for us in order for us to get the gear out of the country, uh, to which it was, was then nice driven. In, yeah, it was then <laughs> driven into Belarus uh, and then into Ukraine. And then we sent it back. Uh, we took Turkish Airlines to come back home to the United States. Did they um, do that gratis or did they do, how much did you have to pay them? that brings me to another story (laughs) Russia provides the best stories from Russia with love let's go so so fast forward now uh, six months and this doesn't have anything to do with star set now I'm back with body count and iced tea in Serbia and I have a carne again and we had a production manager at the time and I asked him, I'm like, please make sure you stamp the carne coming out of Hungary into Serbia because I need to export it again. So we get done with this gig in Belgrade, Serbia, which was like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Serbia or not, but like you cross the border going in from Budapest into Serbia. And the first thing you see is a billboard that says McDonald's 100 kilometers. And that's what you have to fucking look forward to. That that's the first thing that they want you to know. There there's one there, and it's it's there. And you you know Belgrade actually is really a cool place. Um, you know they still have buildings there with missile holes in them. Like that's that's a thing from like the Yugoslavian war and everything. Crazy show. We we get on the bus, and you know Shabana will laugh about this because she knows how I was like back in 2018 or 17. So I crack open a bottle of wine. I've, I'm like two to three glasses deep. I had had enough. And I'm like, I'm going to bed and I'm on the bus with ice and cocoa. Um, and I fall asleep in my bunk and I were stopped for a couple minutes. And then the driver, Stanislav, who was a Czech driver, he wakes me up. He's like, Hey boss, we got, we got a big problem. I'm like, what's the problem? He's like, the carne is not stamped. They're not letting us out of the country. I'm like, you fucking kidding me right now. So I go downstairs and I'm, I'm talking to the driver again. And he's like, what do we do? I'm like, here's what you're going to do. I'm like, you're going to go back in there to that Serbian guy and just tell him that all the paperwork is going to be in order when I come in there. And when I walk in that room, I want you to walk out, just walk out. Don't come back. Let me handle it. Okay. So ice is down there and he's like, He's like, what's going on? And I just look at him. I'm like, if I don't get back on this bus, you guys need to go to Croatia and tell them that I'm in a Serbian federal prison and I need to get 
you need to get a hold of the U.S. consulate that's there and get me the fuck out of that country. And he's like, <laughs> all right, that was it. All right. So that's cool. So I go upstairs. I go get my bag. I go grab the carne. I go out to the bus that's next to us. I, saw, I find the production manager and I'm like, listen, I'm like, did you get the carne stamped? He's like, well, I gave it to the guy. I said, that's not what I fucking asked you. I'm like, did you get the carne stamped? And he looks at me. He's like, well, I, I handed it to him. And I just, I grab it back. I'm like, listen, I'm like, this is now mine. That's it. You don't get to touch this anymore. I said, and a week's pay is gone from you. Flat and simple. It's over. I said, because it's going to get donated back to this. So I find my merch guy. His name is Greg. He has like big, long silver hair and everything. We called him Endless Summer because he was just like a surfer dude. And I'm, I'm like, go get me $1,000 worth of merchandise out of the back of the truck now. So he goes and gets me it, hands me the merch. I got my bag. I'm like, I'll be right back. I go into this office and there's this, I walk in and there's this big Serbian fucking headed guy. Cause Serbian, like he's got a big head, like literally it looked like a fucking box. And there's two guards behind him with AK 47s all shouldered up. And I'm just like, I'm like, all right. I'm like, we're going to fucking roll like this today. I'm like, it's fine. I look at the driver and he goes out, walk up to the glass and I've got my bag and I got everything. And he just looks at me like dead staring at me. And I just said, here you go. And I slipped the carne under his desk and he opens it up and 2000 Euro fall out right into his lap. (laughs) So he like now like just is counting bills in front of me and I'm just sitting there and he's counting like one after the other. And I'm like, yep, five years, 10 years, 20 years. I'm fucked. I am so fucked. Like I'm just sitting there waiting for it. He puts the money down on the table and he looks at me and the guards look at each other. And then I take the merchandise and I slam it underneath the, the glass. And he's like looking at all this shit that I just got from all body count gear. And the guys are all looking at each other. And he just puts it down. I'm like, all right. So I like, I grab my all access pass with body count and I just put it under the table and he looks at the pass and he sees iced tea on it. And he looks at the merch and he looks at the money and he looks at me dead in the face. And he's like, you can go now. And I'm like, great. Perfect. This is, this is fantastic. Stamps my carne and I'm walking out and I just hear, ho, 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 hold up, hold up. And it's the two guards with guns coming after me now and i'm like here we fucking go i'm like now i'm going to prison they look at me and they're like they look at the bus and they look at me they have their guns in their hands and they look at the bus and they look at me again they're like iced tea and i'm like let's go on the bus let's go get some fucking autographs let's go like let's have a great time let's meet everybody i'm like and i bring them on the bus and you know, the guards come up and they see ice. They're like, ice tea, ice tea. And ice is like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, just sign shit. We'll be fine. Just sign it all. And they're like signing stuff. And they're like, we take selfies, 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 this, selfies, that, signing this, signing that. And they're like, you come back anytime. And then they like are walking off the bus. The bus driver's wearing his custom body count hat that we got him. They look, they're like, this is ours now. And they take the fucking hat off his head and they walk out the door and they let us go on to Croatia. And that was the day that I, if you want to talk about being a tour manager and problem solving, that earned me a gold star that day. So that's my story. I was wondering how long I could keep my asshole clenched. (laughs) That was terrifying, dude. I was like, where is this going? 
Me too. I'm I thought, still I thought you were to be like, and and then they had a helicopter, and I just saw my buddy hanging right above, like right above Brazil. I'm like, oh, Colombia. Yeah. It was fucking gnarly. So, what did Ice T think about after this? Because you're like, you're like, what the fuck? Like, did you guys have like a, like a debriefing after? Like, hey, bro, he was gonna blow your head off, or like, fucking sign that shit. Yes. So we actually, the bus takes off. And him and Coco were down there. And Coco's a very good friend of mine, too. Um, he looks at me and he's like, yo. He's like, uh, the fuck was that? And I was like, I bribed him. He's like, you bribed them? I'm like, yeah, I bribed them. He's like, you could have gone to jail. And I'm like, I know. He's like, you could have been in prison. I'm like, I know. He's like, welcome to the crew. And he went back to bed. And that was the end of it. <laughs> Damn. That was our debrief. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I've never been a tour manager, but I'm always amazed because I, coming from the classical world, I had no concept of what a tour manager was. And it wasn't until I got into Star Set, really, and like seeing you and, you know, the things that Ron has done and other, you know, TMs and, and you know, just seeing other bands touring. It's, it, it's crazy, especially when you go overseas into some of these far off places, what you have to do. Yeah, Siobhan, you had, you had a little issue in Russia, didn't you? I did. Yeah. And I think I told this on a, a previous yeah. episode, but th this was after your time, John, but we, we were in, um, uh, Vladivostok, Russia going to Khabarovsk, which was, you know, far Eastern Russia. It's not like going to Moscow, St. Petersburg. And you know how they give you, when you go into, um, the country, you get this, this card that they put into your passport. That's, it's not the visa, but it's like some sort of like permit that you have to show to the hotels when yep. you go each time they ask for this, th this card. So anyway, you're not allowed to staple anything in the passport. So at some point mine fell out or disappeared. And I show up at this, um, this hotel in one of these Russian cities and they're like, Oh, where's your little, your little card. And I'm like, Oh, well, I had it when I got on the plane and it's missing. So I get dragged off to this like scary, scary police station with a similar situation that it's like they're they're saying like oh no it, it's it could take a week for us to process another one of these cards and we had to leave like on a flight the next day and we had like a russian handler with us who came and he was like oh no but this is like american rock band like she has to leave like tomorrow and it was i don't know what exactly he did but i think something along those lines happened is like probably some bribery and some merch and some tickets and and all of a sudden it was like okay here you go right there they, you know, the funny thing is, it really exists the same in a lot of countries. It's, you know, Russia is just much more, uh, you know, open out in the open when it comes to that. And, you know, the funny thing is, Siobhan, it's like, um, even with the current climate that's going on right now, like there's still a lot of friends of mine in Russia and contacts that I work with, you know, and that goes from the distributors to, you know, promoters and everything else. And it's like, um, it's a real shame that, you know, a lot of artists have lost quite a market to play in. Um, and, you know, sure. taking the, taking the context out of that too, like, obviously like the war that's going on is a very terrible thing and it's awful, you know, with Ukrainians and the Russians and like, you know, um, you know, to, I, I will say that anytime that I've ever been in that country, um, the people that we worked with, you know, whether it was, you know, I was with Starset or, you know, with Ben or whoever else, like they were always wonderful. You know, it was always a great time. And the, the fans of Russia are rabid. Like there are no yeah. fans in the world like them. They are crazy for music. 
um, you know, it's probably because obviously like they're stuck in the middle of Russia, you know, and they're not used to like such an outside world, like, you know, that, that we have, you know, we kind of take it for granted sometimes, but I feel your pain. Cause I know that if you went through that, I'm sure it was quite the ordeal for you to deal with as well. Yeah. Definitely. But you're you're right. I mean, my memories of Russia and even the show that you referenced at the beginning of the episode that we played in Moscow, it's still one of the most memorable shows I've ever played. And it's yeah, it's a shame not to be going back anytime soon. But, (laughs) you know, I'd say, you know, in a good decade, it'll probably write itself. You know, I don't think it's going to be any time before that, though. I I bet 10 years at least we'll take to that. Yeah, that's my guess. Uh, before we started the episode, you and I were chatting real quick and you started, you know, kind of just listing off your current, um, artists that you're working with. Uh, can you kind of go through that real quick, uh, for our listeners just to get a, you know, a, just to get the appreciation of the fact that you're running these companies plus working with these people at the moment, and then maybe tell us something, you know, that's happened recently while you've been, uh, you know, out on the road. So currently I tour manage falling in reverse, um, Tash Sultana, I production manage and I do um, some like tour directing for her as well. Uh, and Tash has been wonderful to work with. Tash is one of the largest like Australian artists like um, in the jam and like kind of pop world uh, and has been very, very uh, wonderful to work with. So it's falling in reverse. Those guys are phenomenal. Um, they, they, you know, the sweetest dudes on the face of the earth. And obviously like Ronnie is like really, um, been striking a lot in like the music scene as far as like his differentiation and rock music for incorporating hip hop and rock and metal and all and everything. Um, Snoop, I still do work with as well. Um, you know, I, I had the honor of actually coming in and assisting with his mom's funeral back two years ago, his mom had passed. Uh, and I got a call to go out, uh, for his mom, Beverly, and we wound up doing like a three hour long, like massive funeral show. Uh, I was flying in, you know, acts from all over the world and coordinating with them, including John Legend, Kirk Franklin, the Williams brothers. Like it was, it was, an, it was like going to the Grammys. It was, it, the performances were unbelievable. Um, I tour direct filter. Uh, and I also do Eagles of death metal as well. Uh, you know, they, another wonderful group of human beings that are like, I love all of them. Um, they're the sweetest people you could ever imagine. Um, you know, and there's a lot of controversy around Eagles of death metal, obviously due to the terrorist attacks that happened at the Bataclan that happened years ago. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of like extra layers of security that I have to work with, with those, with that band. Um, I recently just, um, worked with Wu-Tang and I production managed them too. Which like, which one of the 19, 19- the Dow of who? All of the woos and all of the tangs. <laughs> Not Dirt McGirt. Do you guys have a hologram for him yet? No, no. I, it's funny. Like, Tarif is their tour manager. Um, you know, but, like, I wound up coming in as, like, kind of, like, not a PA, but, like, like kind of like a production coordinator on the last tour, but I wound up doing a lot of it, you know, and Chad Fuller, who designed the whole thing and production managed it, I worked with him and he did a phenomenal job on the overall design of that tour. Um, you know, I wound up now production managing them for like upcoming tours that they're doing and stuff too. Like Tarif and I have a long history together because I actually uh, tour managed Public Enemy also. Um, and we worked together on the Gods of Rap tour in Europe. Um, 
I can you do, please I, get can you please get them together with anthrax and uh, I love that because, actually because I just saw anthrax last night and Scott Ian tried doing all like the Chuck D and Flavor Flav shit and I was like man how cool would this be like if I saw that mashup live now like that all of my life all the decisions I've made I've led up to that moment. <laughs> I sincerely hope that you use that quote going forward on this podcast every week. You can tell Chuck D. You can tell Chuck D. That's exactly what I mean, and I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart because he means so much to me, especially with Scott Ian going like behind. I, te- I texted him earlier today, and I told him what a, what a phenomenal job he did on the uh, the Grammys last night. Chuck is Chuck is a really good dude, and he's a he's a he's I'm proud to call him a friend, also, which is really neat. Um, I'm trying to think who the hell else am I working with these days also? You've already uh, listed so many. Oh my God. It's like mind blowing how many people you've worked with. Well, well, I still do. Um, like I, I co-manage and tour manage body count now with ice tea. Um, and then I manage another band that, uh, is now rising out of the Pennsylvania market by the name of another day dawns. I know that they actually toured some shows with you guys, Siobhan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Dustin and Ron, it was actually great that they allowed them to go out. Like we just got them a, a very big, um, and gracious record deal from century, uh, distributed by the orchard. They're releasing their new track in March. Um, and then we have some big touring plans for them coming out in like April and May. So it's been, um, it's been quite the story for those dudes also. Then they're young too. They're only like 24 to 26, uh, but they've, you know, they've been having a blossoming career already, and I've been very fortunate. I think you're. I, I love all the the. You sound like a tour manager, like with the press release. But let's get let's get into the deep of it all because you represent some pretty interesting people. So when I first heard "Falling in Reverse," I was on Blabbermouth, and I, I heard like these guys can't play a show because they they don't have their laptops. And I went and listened <laughs> to the music, and I was like, okay, hold on, I like this band. But that seems lame to me. So I'm just wondering, but, but then I realized maybe I'm old and I'm a DJ. And if I didn't have my laptop, I couldn't DJ. Although I do have a thumb drive. So <laughs> I, what? what's up with that, man? Am I, should I be angry about that? Because they're nice people, you're saying. But should I be angry or not angry? You should. Okay, so there's there's two sides to this story. <laughs> so side story one is that the laptops went missing. And there was a gentleman that was working before me and uh, we wound up tracking them down once I got involved with the band and I had them delivered to my room in Beverly Hills where I was at at the time and got them back in my possession. Um, There was a misfortune where somehow their gear got kind of trucked all over the country. It was very loosely done. And then I had to put it all back together, build out manifests and everything. Um, The thing is about bands is that every band has their niche and every band has their craft for what it is that they do. And, you know, every band has their values for what they view that they want to portray to put on to the fans. Now, as much as it's the fans that are paying for the ticket for the experience for the fan, it's the band's responsibility to live up to that experience for what they believe is their artistry. In all due respect, uh, I've seen a laptop that Starset used that was basically being held together by a fucking cooling tower of water in Japan with running at Mach 10 uh, the way that it probably shouldn't have been. But what I will give Dustin Bates and Ron credit for is 
They wanted that piece of gear to function because it was an integral part of the show in order to make the band work. And the thing is, to me, I understand how people view laptops because it's like, oh, it's like cheating or this or that, you know, but like, to be honest with you, it's not like bands have, not all bands have a keyboard player, you know, like Starset just came into a keyboard player with Corey, like, and you know, the thing is, is that that took time to get it to that point. Okay, Han, let's, yeah. let's stop for one second because I'm with you. Because I believe that, you know what, like I know that Starset has a redundant computer so that if their computer, because they're fucked if it's gone. But mm-hmm. Ron is smart enough to know he needs to have another redundant computer and probably three other backup plans and a jump drive and it all up to the cloud so that if something goes on that they still go on in Tokyo. So don't. I, so now, doesn't it come down to a logistics thing where like, shouldn't they have? Because now I have all of my DJ stuff on a thumb drive, so I can just plug it into tables anywhere. And so if I forget my tables or I forget, like, there's my whole library. Shouldn't it be like that at this point? Because it's it's technology. I can get this to my head according to Elon Musk. The 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 redundant was also missing at that point, and not only <laughs> oh, was it no. the re- yeah, it, it was both of them at the same time, and the playback rig. So the problem was is that all of the gear and everything that essentially made that function wasn't available. So you know, it could have been put together very last minute potentially, but it also could have opened up the potential for a disaster on stage. And could have made things worse. So, you know, like, I got to say that, like, I got to respect Ronnie and the band's decision for wanting to do that. Like, you know, and to be honest with you, it's like, I got to laugh at the hypocrisy a little bit of it, too, with the whole Sebastian Bach and the Eddie Trunk thing and everything. Because they're like, oh, fuck you and bands and you can play without tracks and this and that. And these bands don't play without tracks. And it's such fucking bullshit. Because it's like, you know, Ronnie was right. Like, you know, guys are pr- like are praising Aerosmith for being a true rock band. And I know there's a fucking like pro tools rig or Ableton or whatever. That's blasting out 10 fucking harmonies to dude looks like a lady. Like he's right. You know, there's, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that a lot of bands do use tracks. There are some that don't, um, but that's their craft and that's what they're built on. And the thing is, is that at the end of the day, if a band is built for a show, And if they do have safeguards in place and they do have all of these things that are being done to protect those safeguards. And let's just say everything fucking goes wrong, which is exactly what happened. They just had extremely bad luck and everything went wrong. And then the internet went into a fucking shitstorm and frenzy over it, which, you know, at the end, I kind of had the last laugh because I found the laptops and they were in my fucking hotel room, which I was actually laughing hysterically about because it's like, you know, millions of people are freaking out about these two Mac laptops and here they are in a FedEx box because I found them in some fucking place in Boston. Um, but the thing is, is that like, you know, I... I what, what I can respect is a band canceling a show because they're not able to perform it. What I cannot respect is a band going up on a stage and just being a bunch of fucking jerk offs and not caring about the fans that are in front of them and half-assing a show to begin with. That to me is more of a problem than it would be to actually cancel a show. Um, you know, and, and to be honest, like I've seen some meltdowns before on stage with certain acts, um, all of which will remain nameless because, you know, there's no reason to drag that kind of shit up. Um, you know, but I, I will say that, like, uh, if anything, it made for great press and PR in the end and definitely put, you know, 
the internet ablaze talking about the band essentially. So I'll, you know, who's to say that like, um, you know, everybody, I guess the, the best way to put it, everybody loves a good story. Um, you know, everybody loves a hero and everybody loves a villain. Um, you know, it's sometimes the villain is actually a hero in a villain's mask, you know, and sometimes the hero is really the villain. It's Does just, that mask it's, look like Sebastian Bach? <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> I, I would say that um, all of the greats out there uh, and all of the ones that are the, that are the ultimate rock stars know how to create controversy. You know, I think that like nobody, nobody ever remembers. And this might be a little harsh thing for me to say, and I apologize in advance, but like nobody really remembers the ones that played it safe. You know, like, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm probably going to get knocked for this at some point. If somebody ever watches this, po- this like podcast, it's like, you know, they don't, you know, don't worry about like, it. It's like, over. That's fine. Like y'all remember Axl Rose or y'all remember Kurt Cobain or fucking, you know, Scott Weiland or, you know, Vince Neal or Robert Plant. And you're like, Oh my God, those guys were great, but they didn't play it safe. They were completely out of the box. It's like, you know, it's not like you have a bunch of dudes running around the place in society going, man, fucking trust company was that fucking band, honestly, or like, you know, stabbing Westward they fucking nailed it dude like they were those they were that i just love how edgy hoopastank is yeah exactly it's like the reason you know what and the funny thing is is that i actually love that band they're actually a really great band they are Um, a great band but they you know the thing (laughs) the thing is is that it's just like the ones that are viewed as the ultimate rock stars or ones that change things have a little bit of sense of danger to them And honestly, I think that's the thing that's the most exciting about music is that it's supposed to be, it's not just supposed to be a medium that like uplifts you or changes your life. Some music is meant to be dangerous, you know, like Twisted Sister was a prime example of that too, you know, where like Tipper Gore went out of her fucking way to slap a parental advisory lyric on all of these discs and albums and anything. And look what happened in the end. All it did was made everybody buy more music with that sticker on there because their moms, their dads didn't want them to listen to it. And it wasn't again, it, it was against societal norms, you know, and that to me, I think that's the thing that makes uh, society progress and music progress as well is that when it, you know, it changes stuff and hip hop does the same thing too. Um, I, I would say that like, uh, I've been really blessed with the fact of working with rock, metal, pop, and hip hop artists. There's not many TMs or people in my end of the industry that consistently do that, that revolve around all of those genres. Um, and there's a big misunderstanding and misconception sometimes between those genres. And, you know, um, maybe the reason that I fit in with all of them so well is because you've got white guys, black guys, and I'm a tan guy. I'm just like an Oreo cookie stuck right in the fucking middle of it all. Did you uh, call him Snoop? Did you call him Snoop Lion for that six months? Nope. No, absolutely yeah. not. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I just call him Snoop. Um, speaking of the fact that you're working in all these different genres, which you said isn't isn't common for a tour manager, are there any kind of uh, clear differences in the approach or the tours uh between like a hip-hop show a rock show a pop show hip-hop focuses a lot more on audio 
um, you know, they, they don't have like, there's not a lot of hip hop shows that I've done or like specific, but like time coding, um, you know, regimented, uh, specific flows. Like, don't get me wrong. They all have a set list and for what they work with essentially. But it's like, um, it's just a different environment. Um, I would say that of all the genres to work in rock is the most difficult, uh, because it, it's always the one that's expected to be the most finite for what the expectation is essentially like, don't get me wrong. Hip hop has its expectations too. Um, but the thing about, and I don't mean like, uh, I, I would say active rock is, is more in that genre rather than just like straight up like rock bands, essentially like Eagles of death metal is a straight up rock band and they're phenomenal at what they do. Like if, if I, I would actually tell people, if you have an opportunity to go see a show over there, go, because if you really just wanted to see a great band to have fun to, they're it. Uh, there, there's just something about them that, um, is, is just incredible to watch musicianship wise. Um, you know, the, the, the cultural aspect is really different, uh, between all of these. And one of the things that I've always wanted to have was a bridge between all of them because you know music's just a fucking buffet in the end it's just a matter of what you want to sample at the end of it um and it's 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 a matter of you know expanding your horizons and listen i i'm the first guy to say like in the music industry you know there there's racism that it, that extends in that also and i don't mean racism in the fact of being um you know hating on another person for their skin color I would say that there's a racism in the sense that there's a fear of not understanding the concept and culture of exactly how those shows and operations work. Sometimes it's not easy to take somebody from the rock world and insert them into the hip hop world because the demeanor and the language and the mannerisms and the approach are completely different and that's okay. And that's totally cool. Uh, but the expectation though, the funny thing is, is that hip hop makes a lot more money than rock does at times. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the end goal is really the same out of all of it. You know, I, I think that like, uh, one of my favorite things about working in all of those genres though, um, has just been like the great relationship and team building that I've had with so many different crew members and so many different artists. And like, you know, it's, uh, working with your mentors and your heroes also that goes for rock too. Like, you know, I never would have thought that I'd be standing next to, you know, Snoop or uh, Chuck D or, you know, the RZA uh, or You God or like, you know, YDB or any of those guys in hip hop, like, and like actually knowing them on a, on, like on a friendly basis. Like, you know, even like Lejean from Seven Dust. Lejean was one of the main reasons I got into music to begin with, because I remember being like, I think it was like maybe 13 at the time and turning on MV, M, MTV and like TBT was their label that they were on. And they were like promoting uh, black from that album that just came out. And I remember being like, who the fuck is this band? Like, it was just a sound like you didn't hear. It was like hearing smells like teen spirit for the first time. Can I, can I tell you that I, I can, I know exactly how you feel about it because I got the Ozfest 97 double album Best Buy thing that you got for going to OzFest. Yep. And it had, it was the first time they released Black by Seven Dust. I remember thinking that this was the most badass song that even though my friend had bought me fish tickets to go see them um, November 27th, 1997 at the Centrum, 
um, during the intermission, I ran over to the, uh, I think it's the Espresso Bar, and it was Snot 7 Dust and Human Waste Project. And I still have yeah. it signed on my wall. I saw Lynn Strait with, with Snot, with Mikey D, who, Doling, who comes on the show sometimes, into 7 Dust. And I, and I can say, unequivocally, having seen them 20-something times in my life, that there is, there's almost no band in any genre that is more a well-oiled machine as far as seven dust as just kicking your fucking ass grabbing you by your neck and literally rocking you but then making you want to cry and like Lejean has that Corey Glover thing from like A Living Color where he's like he's a fucking black dude with dreads it sings like he grew up in a fucking church but then he also he's mad he's really angry and then you got Morgan Rose back there fucking screaming so yeah. like, yeah, man. And, and and Morgan does all the tricks that he learned from Shannon Larkin, but he made him famous because he looked fucking angry. And sh- it's awesome. And what an awesome <laughs> band. And then Clint Lowry when he sings. Holy fuck. That guy sounds almost good as good as Lejean. Christmas Day. I thought that was Lejean until Lejean comes in. I'm like, who's the guy that sounds better than Lejean? Oh, that's Lejean. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. So I experienced the same thing. You know, dude, it's like, I, I have to agree. It's like, you know, that seven dust is a band that, you know, quite honestly, like destroys stages when they got on it. There's just, they're phenomenal to watch musicianship wise, you know, uh, songwriting wise. And you know, that, that, that's another humbling part of like my job is, you know, Lejean was a mentor to me in music, you know, when I was a kid, like me looking up to him and being like, man, like I really love to get involved, like in the industry, you know, and hearing that voice for so long and loving those songs. And like now the fact that like, I consider Lejean a friend, you know, is a really humbling experience. And quite honestly, it's like, um, for the bands that I've worked with, um, that have trusted me enough to work with them. It's been, uh, it's humbling and it's a real reward, you know, cause it's, it, you know, how many guys can really, uh, hold on. Let me, let me word this in a really funny way. How many, how many tan Persian equal opportunists can really sit there and say that they've had that kind of an experience in their lifetime to work with all these people from all over the globe. You know, I, you know, I've been blessed with having businesses on top of it too. I have a beautiful wife. I have two beautiful kids. Uh, I have a fat ass cat and a very nice dog as well. Uh, you know, and to be honest, it's like, I've had like 10 lifetimes in not even a half of a lifetime. And that's pretty cool. My grandfather lived to 114. So I'm only 42. So I'm fucked. Like I might got, I might have like, this might only be a third of my life for all I fucking know. <laughs> that's incredible. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, Jeez. that's a true story. Yeah. You know, he, I, he was an old school Iranian. Like I learned about, like he actually worked for Iranian secret service, like way back in the day when my father told me and everything. I mean, he was also 40 and my grandmother was 15, which everybody calls Megan's law these days, by the way, but that was Iranian Persian concert back in the fucking twenties. So it's like shit changes, I guess, whatever. So, <laughs> kept them young apparently uh yeah whatever <laughs> must have must have been take some... me behind you, you can take me behind the barn and just put me out of my misery if i'm like over fucking 80 <laughs> oh my I, on my 80th birthday just take me out back like a gold yeller just fucking if i'm still going over my head if i'm still going let me go if i can't move or function just i'm with you 
put me in the car with a eight ball and a fucking bottle of scotch and let's have some fun. Go go with a bang. Um, So what do you have? uh, What do you have coming up? Like what's, what's next for you at this time in, in your many ventures? Uh, I got some stuff like on the table right now, like working with Tash, um, like I got to do this month. Um, you know, I'm advancing tours for Snoop. I'm advancing tours for, you know, Eagles of death metal. I'm working on stuff for falling in reverse. We're, we're not very smart. So when, well, not Siobhan, she's smart. Corey and I, when you say advance, I, I normally think to myself, like, that's what my dad would put against my bike, you know, for my allowance next week. If I put all my dishes away, <laughs> another t- TM term. So TM, basically, is, I, is that trademark? Trademark? Isn't that like the little? It's what? it's it would be known as preparing, essentially, like doing my my uh, my studying, if you will, for my for my actual exam. I guess is the best way to put it. So if wait a minute, are you going to go to Boston course. with Snoop? Not Boston, no. Oh man, Corey and I were totally going to be like, "Yo, man, <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to pick you up in a second for tickets." Oh, well, I love. <laughs> well, listen, just so you understand. I'm a D so I'm a DJ and I want to tell you how I know how awesome Snoop Dogg is. So I remember Columbia house. You could tell this yeah. to Snoop. You'll appreciate this. So like you got like 12 free tapes or whatever for the price of one. So I got the chronic and I got doggy style. And cause I okay. was, I was, I was a child at like a 13 around when gangster rap, like the ice, ice cube, um, you know, Dre Snoop, like the whole Compton, that whole NWA. thing happened I, yeah. Yeah, just at the end of NWA, after NWA. And I remember getting, uh, listening to The Chronic uh, and, and Doggy Style and a little bit of Naughty by Nature all back to back. And my dad walks in. Um, there was a song on the, in particular on The Chronic called The Day the, the Blanks Took Over. And he said, where did you get this? I said, I saw it on MTV. And he cut off cable and canceled my Columbia House <laughs> thing. And I remember thinking to myself, Oh, Ten yeah, this is badass. You know, but I remember thinking to myself, this is badass. Like, my dad didn't say that about Iron Maiden when he's singing, uh, Bruce, Bruce Dickinson singing about, you know, Alexander the Great. My dad's like, oh, that's historically accurate. But Dr. <laughs> Dre, Snoop Dogg, he was none too pleased. I have a really good story about that Columbia House shit. So I worked. <laughs> no, like, this is a true story. You're going to actually laugh your ass off at this. I worked at. Um, a place called heavy grass, which was a, a weed company in Culver city. And I worked with, uh, I was the production manager for a weed company for about six months. I would fly back and forth from the East coast to Culver city. And I worked with the, w- one of the owners, his name is Keeve Huffman. And Keeve used to work and be used to be the head of marketing at Columbia house records. And he owned this company called heavy grass. Now Keeve is the guy who invented the 10 cassettes for one cent while he was working at Columbia house. That was his invention, believe it or not. And his marketing promo. So the guy <laughs> that like all those fucking flyers that went out all over the country and your national inquirers and TV guides and all that shit, that dude invented it. I never forgot that. And I just, I looked at him. I was like, we were out to like lunch one day and he told me that. And I was like, wow. I'm like, I'm working with a legend. <laughs> well I, i'd be upset because i'd be like i still owe you money yeah it's like that was the trick we all like, we all owe you money dude that's the problem like they'd be like oh forever here's where it ended they sent me a dwight yoakam cd i didn't ask for the dwight yoakam cd you actually had to tell them not to send it to you which is definitely a no-no legally now so like 
They sent it to me and I was like, I don't want to pay for this. My dad, my dad was supposed to cancel it. $19.99 plus like $8.99. He was one of the full price ones. I'm like, dad, I'm not paying $28.99 to Columbia House. And for like literally two years afterwards, my dad would get letters. Be like, you owe $64.99 now. It's like in arrears. Oh, yeah, they, like- they would they would spend seventy dollars to collect their thirty and like fucking postage stamps and shit, which is just like backwards thinking in and of itself. But whatever, it's it's all good. I I trust me. Like it'd be like we're gonna get you your ten cassettes for one penny, but we're gonna fuck you and we're gonna you're gonna get smacked with two hundred and forty dollars in shipping costs. Like that was the catch. Like you know they had you too. Like you're fucked. I get it. It oh, was yeah. cool. So, but um. But yeah, I mean, basically, like, just continuing to plow through and work on tours and artists and expand. And, you know, like I said, like, I'm um, working closely with the band that I manage, making sure that the launch of their song goes out, you know, as as well as possible. And um, I don't know, continuing to create. Um, I'm going on vacation with my wife to Costa Rica for a week in March. That's going to be fun, too. So, oh, yeah, that sounds badass. Yeah, she. We're going with our friends too, and everything. I mean, my um, my wife's like my wife, but my rock. She's. Um, I'm very lucky that she's very understanding of this career that I have. So, and I can't really stress that enough too. Like That's she's amazing. Been no, I've, I've, important. I. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I tour with my husband, and it, yeah, the idea of someone being at home while someone's away I, that's that's really hard i mean it takes a really strong partner i think to be able to do that so that's she's amazing no she's the best being as uh, eclectic as you are with so many businesses so many things going on um you know one question i have is how the fuck do you manage your time please tell me because i have no idea what i'm doing with my life and second of all is how do you maintain a work-life balance <sighs> Well, uh, my one company MCR, I'm very fortunate to have, uh, such a strong leader. Uh, my number two, his name is Brian. Uh, and funny enough, um, a lot of people that work that I work with in crews and everything like that, they actually know Brian really well. Uh, Cause I, it's funny. A lot of the, a lot of crew guys that I, um, that have had time off, uh, in multiple acts, they actually come work for my company, believe it or not. They, uh, during the pandemic, uh, even when the chips were down, I actually wound up getting a, um, a massive multi-million dollar contract from a resort that we were facilitating. Cause I went and hustled, you know, I thought that the best thing that I should do is get out back and with the venues and establish relationships. And then these venues started having their trust in me and we built massive bridges to, you know, company infrastructure. We came into a massive windfall and, you know, I looked at my bottom line and, um, I knew I was going to make a lot of money. Um, you know, and this kind of goes back to our conversation that we had before about who doesn't like money and who doesn't, you know, want to get rich and all that stuff. So what I did was, is that I called in crew guys to help me execute this massive resort job that had no work and weren't doing anything whatsoever. Uh, I basically said, I'm like, I want to pay you a bunch of money and, um, let's get to work and we can be up here at this resort for like the next couple of months. And you can actually feel like you're like kind of whole again, you know, and actually have like a purpose with stuff. And, um, you know, I, I probably sacrificed a couple, you know, maybe 10 or 20 grand out of my bottom line for stuff. But to me, it was more worth it to help out people that were down and that were not, you know, out to go with their livelihood. Um, 
so they actually like going back to it, like they all know Brian, who's like my number two in the company, you know, they, all these crew guys for some strange reason, sometimes come to MCR and doing stuff. Um, you know, when it comes to a work-life balance, I have to, I have to plead guilty in the fact that, uh, I'm not the best at it. And there's a lot more work that's sometimes not so focused at life, which I'm trying to be better at at times, you know, um, I feel like with a little bit more revenue streams that come in with that, I'll be able to put more people in place. And to be honest with you, it really has not been easy in any line of industry that I had since the pandemic, because there's been such a shortage of workers, such a shortage of trained people as well. Um, you know, and it's not like I'm, we're not offering to pay people a lot of money, but it's, it's the same thing as far as crew guys inside of the, the music industry. There's still few and far in between, you know, you can't find a lot of great people. There's still a lot of people that are getting trained in this shit. Um, you know, the, the biggest problem with the pandemic is not the fact that you had a year or two off. You also had three years of training people. So it's a five year catch up just for the ship to essentially write itself. So I'm 42 now. I figure you know, six more years of this chaos, I can either A, retire, or B, I'll be dead. We'll figure out, we're going to bank on A. <laughs> or he'll live till 114, yeah, in which true. case you, know you have two other <laughs> lifetimes to go. So yeah, you let's know that, be optimistic you, here. You know, like uh, at 114, Siobhan, uh, maybe I will be doing another podcast, uh, you know, where I'll be talking about, be like, you know, back when I was 42, you know, back in the old days, you know, like we all used to have sex just to keep warm. Like, who the fuck knows? Like, honestly. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you another question? I've wondered. So, the Eagles of Death Metal, like, are are mm-hmm. they? Is that a misnomer? Because they are neither the Eagles or, and nor are they death metal. <laughs> I think that was the the shtick that Jesse Hughes wanted to go with. Instead, just, and it was just a, such an outlandish. Uh, title for a band, essentially, because they're not a, a death metal band, and you know, like. But, you know, the, if there's uh, one thing about Jesse, he's got a lot of uh, bravado, I guess is the best way to put it. Like everything is always like big, impactful, fun, um, you know, and I think that was such a a massive detriment to him when that incident happened with the Bataclan, um, you know, and Mark Pollock, who's their manager, is a very good friend of mine. And I love working with Mark. He's uh, he's very headstrong and he's very determined and he's very forthright about everything that he gets done or wants to get done with his bands. And I have a lot of respect for him. But when the Bataclan incident happened and over a hundred people were killed inside of the venue, um, you know, and as much as Jesse is all about embracing and, having people around and loving everybody like you know like his music is just like that where it's just he wants everybody always just to have such a good time it was a violation of natural order and especially in the music world you know and i think that goes with any band whatsoever and we talk about security like it's never a problem until it's a problem but imagine being at a show and having individuals coming in and mowing down a hundred in over a hundred innocent people that were there just to celebrate and have a great time with a band and with music and with each other for that matter, you know, and I've been to Paris with Jesse, um, 
you know, obviously years after this happened, and I, I wasn't involved with the Bataclan trials. However, I was involved with with working with the French government um, to get him in for the Bataclan trials this year. You know, I actually had fly him in from Norway secretly uh, into Paris under strict heavy guard for him to testify against the last person of ISIS that's in captivity with them. And, you know, there, he still has a bounty on his head. You know, so imagine working with somebody over there that like ISIS wants dead. You know, that's fucked up. Um, you know, just because he's a musician or because uh, he was just picked, you know, like the, the universe is really fucked up in those kind of ways, you know. And the one thing that I will say is that um, I established a really good brotherhood with Jesse. I love that guy. Like in the whole band, like, uh, you know, like a family, the same way that I would say it about any of the star set guys and, and girls as well, by the way. Um, and you know, I think when it comes down to it, as far as the natural order of things, it's like, look, like people go to a club or a, a an arena or an, an amphitheater or wherever it is, or, or even on a street, to escape um, maybe their everyday problems or just go to a band to listen to what they can relate to them because there's something about that band that brings it out uh, for them. And when we go back to like uh, that discussion about that band with the Bataclan, um, yeah, I think it impacted just about every band around the world, to be honest with you, because nobody could believe that something like that ha could ever happen. Um, you know, and I, I hate to sound morbid when I say this, it's, it was, it was, it's not going to be the last time and it's, and it's not. Uh, and the only reason that I say that is because if everybody thinks that it's not, you're all fooling yourselves. I mean, look at Las Vegas when there was a shooting with, you know, 60 people were killed in the outside there. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, the world, the world's got some scary problems and some scary issues. But, uh, the one thing that I will say is that, no matter what somebody can do in those kind of an instances, uh, I don't think it, regardless, it will ever be a deterrence that people like myself or like Siobhan or like Jesse or, you know, Dustin Bates or Ben or Ice-T, nobody's ever really going to stop doing what they're doing. Um, yeah. And I think that's the ultimate reward is that uh, not everybody, and, you know, Siobhan, this is a testament to you too, not everybody has the ability to get up on that stage and it's a gift that you get to have every single day. Yeah, true. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Dude, listen, man, I, I got to tell you, I love your hustle. I think that you really, you got something down. I mean, I, I and by the way, what an elevator pitch telling me about that delicious root beer. Like I just got my <laughs> hair cut. Like, like what is, it's like, it's a sensual it's thing. Like, I'm, I'm getting my back rubbed. And like, you're like, it's only $20. So the Jew and me is like, yeah, my hair looks fucking <laughs> boss. And then you're like, when you think it can't get any better, he pulls out a frosted mug, which just by itself, it like connotates such a lovely visceral experience. And they're like, I, I'm so bought in on that. I love, I love that. And then you're like, and then I lost more money than you'll make in your entire lifetime. But I, that's fine. I'll lose, I'll lose at least six times more than you'll make the next ten years. That'll be fine. I, I can afford to do that because I know numbers, and I'll, I'll bounce back. And then you work with Snoop Dogg, and like you, you know, Riz is calling you up. You know, Dirt McGirt on the Ouija board. Like, man, I respect you. I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. Maybe, maybe you should send us some root beer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? All you gotta do, 
You just send me the address for where it needs to go to, and I will send you all a care package. Do you want to be our first? You want to be our first official sponsor on the? We'll drink root beer on the show. Yeah, we'll we'll show. We'll talk about your root beer on the show. We actually (laughs) don't don't discount David Ellison. David Ellison sent me coffee, but only me. He did. He he needs to be sent to all of us so we can all simultaneously (laughs) pick up our root beer and all drink it in tandem, which we'll do. We'll bow to any sponsor. Like I swear to God. Like like Wayne's World, there's there's an awesome company. So like the the office building where I have my office at, like it's in downtown Wilkesbury. Like it's a fourth floor. I have the whole fourth floor of this building, and there's like subdivided offices that like I basically like sublease out, and we all work as a creative engine. So Matt Giordano from Pressure Firm, he has an office there. Josh Balls has an office with uh, he and I together. Uh, but there's another company that's in there called Dead Sled. And Dead Sled is a coffee company. So they're the company that's been white labeling the coffee for Motionless and White, for Rob Zombie, for Disturbed, for Nightmare on Elm Street, like all this crazy shit. And it's so funny because we're all just like running in the same circle together. I actually just got like Dead Sled hooked up with Eagles of Death Metal. They're going to do like a thing for them too. And I was like, (laughs) I was busting his ass. I'm like, what about Filter? He's like, well, maybe we'll do coffee filters for filter. I was like, boy, that's fucked up. Like, it's like, no, you get no coffee, but you could get filters for filter. Fuck it. Whatever. It's cool. No, but I will send you root beer. I, I will gladly oh, send yeah. you out some root beer if you want it. I will, I will, I will send you some swag too. Listen, if we didn't want it, that you didn't do your job properly, sir. You painted that fucking picture. So unless yeah. I literally have PTSD for root beer, which I don't. I mean, it's not one of my favorite drinks. <laughs> but like, I now, I, you've put that like thought in my head. So now I, I'm going to be waiting like a little kid on Christmas morning to find if I'll there's any root beer by my door. And then we'll shamelessly you. drink it. I got Shamelessly. You. I, I don't want you to drink it though because that is shame. I would want you to drink it only if you liked it. That's it. Oh yeah, no, like, I'll I'll drink it no matter what. And if I don't like it, I'll just be like, I'll tell them how much I love you, and that if you like root beer, it's probably good for you. You know what this reminds me of? Like it reminds me of like the Noah's Arcade thing from Wayne's World right yeah, now. Noah's Arcade. <laughs> I opened my mouth and out it came. <laughs> it's fucking incredible. Jesus parlor. Christ. Parlor beverages, parlor. correct? Yep. It's, uh, Where can people get this? Is this available everywhere? How do, how do people get their hands on this stuff? So there's there's a big thing that we're doing right now. Um, it's localized and it's done a lot with e-commerce. Our e-commerce platform is huge. Uh, you can find it at drinkparlor.com. Uh, but the company is actually going into a seed round right now and it's raising capital. Um, so basically everybody can actually buy into the company essentially and own a piece of the company. It's the way that we have this structured out. Like we had to go through rigorous amounts of like, uh, you know, paperwork and everything with the sec and all this stuff. So it's like the company is, uh, going to expand now into the hands of the actual buyers is the way that we have this. So our goal is, our, like, and we'll be at all the festivals again this year. Like, we'll be at Welcome to Rockville. We'll be at Blue Ridge. We'll be at uh, Incarceration, you know, uh, Aftershock, like all of these, you know, the, all the Is big this DWC. still an excuse for you just to get backstage and hang out with all the bands you love? Just like how you got all the venues and made all the shows for yourself. And like, you just create your whole life. You're like, what can I do? I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do this whole root beer thing so I can hang with Metallica. <laughs> uh, 
they're off limits to me i'm sure uh as far as that's concerned uh they're they're on lockdown um you know i'm like uh the funniest you know what the funniest thing was about the root beer is that like it's obviously focused a lot on rock um you know in that genre but just keep your eye on it throughout the next couple of months because i think you're about there there's some big news we're going to unleash but there's about to be a bridge with it between rock and hip hop. Hell yeah. Listen to awesome. you should get Chuck D in a commercial. Uh, you, you know what I mean? And get, and get like Scotty in from anthrax and you should like break down a wall. Like it's Aerosmith run DMC, like get, uh, the homage <laughs> to everything. And then they can just pull out the parlor uh, and, and just drink it right then and there. And it'll be the bridge for rock. And, and rap and R&B. And then RZA can pull out, just walk out with Snoop and be like, hey, we like it too. And cut, scene. Did you say that you're, a, you said you're a DJ, right? Sometimes. Sometimes? That's yeah. like saying you're, you're, that's like saying you're kind of pregnant. You either are or you're not. <laughs> no, so I'm which a DJ. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, like, so here's the thing. I can't say I'm not a DJ because it's like, I couldn't have my band play the Four Seasons in Boston and pay me three or $4,000 to bring my lights and, you know, look like I'm doing Earth, Wind and Fire or Avicii, whatever, you know, but it's one of those things where I've never had more high level people thank me for doing so little for me, at least. I didn't realize how <laughs> having great, but I'm saying having great taste and having perfect timing, it's just natural. So I'm just like, ah, oh, whatever. I, I know how to find, we're just going to go into, you know, we'll go oh, here. We'll, September, every, listen, if I play Earth, Wind, and Fire September, all right, at the right time, every time. I have an objection me, about your timing, but. <laughs> it's gotten better since you. You you outgrew me a long time ago. I've, I've train wrecked at least 35 gigs since then. But like, yeah. It's one of those things where the people will look at me in my eyes and like you're you're literally helping my life. I've had marine like sergeant majors coming up to me and say thank you for playing my request. Only as a DJ, only as a DJ, I could play concert piano. Literally, I'm 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 a decent pianist. Just you understand, I could play a Rachmaninoff piece. No one gives a shit. They they're like, sir, can you please walk away from the piano? That's that's for the hotel lobbyist pianist. You're just staying here. Please walk away from the piano. They don't care. But if I DJ, fucking A, they give me like a, a drink at the bar for free. It's yeah. This fucking and guy's on, great. On, on that note. <laughs> He's got a John, point. John, dude, thanks for hanging with us. And uh, you know, you're gonna have to come back in about eighty years. Uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be ready to die. You'll be, be starting your your hundred and fifth business, but we'll have to get an update. <laughs> and we're definitely be, gonna yeah. try. We're gonna try some of this root beer for sure. I'm gonna send it. Out, I'm gonna send it out to you guys. So you. Oh, so thanks, John. Um, it's so it's delicious. I've tried it, but I will happily oh, drink it, and we will we will toast with it on the show. I got you. We only had one other sponsor, which was David Ellison's Ellison Coffee. And David Ellison, the bass player of Megadeth, he's the only guy that's maybe come on the show that could compete with you as far as how much shit he has going on. I don't know if he's doing it as effectively as you, but he's a writer. He's got like a he's got a coffee company. He has a, a movie that's winning all kinds of awards. Uh, he's he's in like fourteen bands. He he I th he think he's done things with Chuck D. And uh, all kinds of crazy people. David Ellison. So I think that you guys have become the bar 
as far as if you want to do everything. Like Dustin started his own universe, so he's got that. <laughs> but like you, yeah. you multitask. But but yeah. you multitask. Like in this universe, you certainly are subdivided amongst more. And I love it. It's like the greatest portfolio of any human being ever. So thank you. I admire well, I, you. It's it's my pleasure. Maybe we should do like a. Maybe we'll do a podcast with both, you know, you should get David, both David and I on it and see if in total fucking chaos and ensues and what, what <laughs> oh, would yeah, possibly we should, happen. We should do yeah. a round table podcast with John Phillips. I feel like you would be a great yeah. moderator. I'll send this to David. I, I really will. And I'll, we'll serve him. And if he doesn't want to come on, then I don't know why he's scared. <laughs> then we'll find someone it's, else. <laughs> it's it, It'll probably be because I'm brown. That That's about it. So... <laughs> Well, John, no, really, thank you so much. It, I, it meant a lot to me that you wanted to come on to the show. And I mean, you have so many stories, like more than we can fit in even like 10 episodes. So you'll have to come back and we'll have to do like a, a round two, you know, an update at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm down. Whatever whatever you need, Shimon, I'm always there for you guys. No questions thank asked. Thank you. No, you're the best. That's that's yeah. for sure. We can. That's one thing I can say. You can always rely on John Phillips. You just you, you always get everything together for everyone. You take care of people and you're you're the best. If we want to stalk you, is there like an Instagram we could follow? Do you tweet? Yeah, how, can like, what, you? how are uh, you on uh, TikTok? No, I'm not on. T- you know what? It's funny. I'm on TikTok, but I don't make any TikTok videos. I just like to watch the videos. But it's funny because it's like for I for some weird reason I found out like I had like 1,500 followers and I've never made a video and I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, no, and, and this is fucked up. I was like, why do I have fucking followers on this thing? And it's because Snoop follows my TikTok. Oh. Uh, so, and then I was like, okay, the I'm like, effect. I guess that exp- yes. Yeah. So, um, my, my Instagram is under, uh, MCR Persian. Go figure. Um, uh, there, there's no go figure. It's just MCR Persian. <laughs> uh, and then my, my Facebook is just John Phillips. That that's it. That that's and Parlor you, you know, Root Beer. Um, how how can everyone find that one more time? You you can find it like on socials. It's all under Drink Parlor, you know, and at website it's at drinkparlor.com. Awesome. Very cool. Make sure you guys check it out and always check out two zero two zero d dot com. Like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode 179, featuring Rob Graves, producer of bands like Starset and Red. Check it out. Well, perfectionism is a, it's a form of fear, really. You're, you're just, you're worried about outcomes. You're like, well, what if it's not perfect? And you're, you have to like, it's not going to be perfect. So you have, you, you don't even know what perfect is. That's like the first thing to let go of. It's not just that if you let go of it's not going to be perfect. Let go of the idea that you even know what perfect might be. It could be, you could draw a map and make it, you know, have engineers make it exactly like you think you want something to be. But then it turns out somehow, maybe you'll hate it in a year. Like you don't even, you, just, you, don't, you need to let go of the idea that there is such a thing as perfect. So that, that helps a lot though because then it frees you to really just focus on what you like. And I, I would encourage everyone to like, just trying to create, to really create for themselves. Like it, it, forget all this like proven things to somebody else. You're gonna show everybody like, fuck all that. Like that's never gonna get you anywhere. Like this is coming from in you and it needs to be for you. 
Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.